The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. but the power of the law is also broken over our life so that we're no longer under its demands. So we now, as followers of Christ, have a new freedom, a new power, uh, a new ability and capacity to be obedient and to live rightly related to God and to honor him with our life. That's Romans 1 through 8, right? In just a few words. Uh, So if everybody asks, now you know. And he says, what shall we say to those things? Those are some incredible things, right? And he, he says simply this, and he really sums up all of that in these very simple words. If God is for us, who could be against us? God is for us, who could be against us? In other words, God is on our team. You know, Uncle Drew is on our team, right? And if Uncle Drew's on your team, uh, NBA All-Star Rookie of the Year, Uncle Drew, Uh, Kyrie Irving, you win, right? Bring on the opposing foes. Uh, You win, right? And that's the essence of what Paul says here. If God is for us, uh, who could possibly be against us? Uh, We have every secret weapon and power available. And in the next few verses, he unpacks what that really means, this idea of God being for us. So let's, uh, let's pray. And look together and see what, uh, what it means for God to be for us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that you, uh, for whatever reasons we, we can't even begin to understand or imagine, uh, you love us and you are for us. And you have gone to such incredible lengths uh, to bring us into a right relationship with yourself. And so, Father, we just want to uh, take a moment to reflect on uh, what your love is about, what it is you have done for us, and to give you praise for it. So, Lord, guide us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This passage basically breaks down into two sections, and I've titled it this way. The first section, really, that there is no chance of us being disqualified. There's no means by which we could ever be disqualified from God's love and mercy and grace, what he's done for us. And Paul uh, does this by uh, a couple questions. But before the question, he says this, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Um, what does it mean for God to be for us? Well, it says, first of all, that, uh, that God did not hold back his own son. Right? Amazing, amazing words, amazing verse. Um, uh, we are his children by adoption, and it's true that all of us are his children, but there's only one who holds the place, the special place of being God's eternal son, right? and that was Jesus. Uh, and God the Father, God the Son, before they created anything, lived in perfect harmony, fellowship, communion. And God the Father loved his son with an infinite, inexplicable love. And how much can an infinite God whose love is unbounded, could he love his own son? 
Uh, we have no idea of that. No, no, no way to grasp how much the Father loved his Son. But such was his love for us that he says, when it came time to redeem us, when it came time to solve the problem of our sin, he held back nothing, not even his own Son. Right? And literally it says that uh, he gave him up. Um, the idea is really one of handing somebody over. That he, he sorry, I shouldn't have messed with this. That <laughs> um, he handed him over t- to, to be judged and punished for our sin. Right? God gave him over. And of course there were a lot of others who gave him over. In a sense, we gave Jesus over. Certainly Judas gave him over. Same exact word used there, that Judas betrayed him. He handed Jesus over to his enemies. Pilate and Herod handed Jesus over to the cross. The Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to, to Pilate for execution. But supremely, before any of that, God the Father handed over his own son. Right. Imagine that. Those of you who are parents uh, can have some inkling of what this is. To hand your dear child over to be brutally murdered for the benefit of somebody else. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Okay, along with his son, if he would give the thing most precious to him, the thing worth infinitely more than anything else, if he would give that, what would he conceivably hold back from us? Well, nothing. Uh, God is extravagant in his generosity. It says that he freely gives or generously gives. The word there is a kind of extravagant giving. He, he extravagantly gives us everything. Right? If he's given us the son, the kingdom that the son rules is all ours. So we become recipients of everything God owns. Everything. Right? Everything that's his, he gives to us. And if he would give us his son, uh, truly there's nothing he would hold back. The kingdom eternal life, his joy, his own presence, the Holy Spirit. Everything that's his is ours. All right? Uh, Incredible words. Uh, So that's one thing that God has done for us. He's redeemed us through his own son. right? So then he comes to the next question, or really the first question. He says, uh, who can bring a charge against us? against us, specifically God's elect. Uh, It is God who justifies. Um, The scene changes a bit, and we're going to move from the basketball court, even though I like that that picture because it's fun. Uh, But really, when it says Jesus is on our side, it's not so much uh, in the first few verses in the sense of a sporting event or being on a sports team, but it really is in the idea of being in a courtroom. And so we're going to switch scenes a bit, and he says, who... Who's going to bring a charge against God's chosen ones against you? And the picture is that all of us one day will stand in judgment before God in this great courtroom. God himself is seen in this scene as the judge. Maybe Jesus is our defense attorney. And Satan and all those who would accuse are the prosecutors, right? And Jesus asked, Paul asked this question, who would, who would accuse us of sin or wrong? Right? Who would bring against us a charge that we don't deserve this grace, right? Now, we all know that there's plenty of accusations to be made, right? We all know that we failed God in many ways. And uh, 
honestly, there's a bit of tension and nervousness here. When I stand before God, what happens when Satan stands up and says, yeah, but what about, and he names our worst, most horrific sin ever, right? The one that we are absolutely ashamed of that we want no one ever to know. And he names it in front of God and the whole world, right? We've been exposed, right? Um, but what, is, what, is, what does Paul say? He says, who will bring this charge? Uh, it is God himself who judge. It is he who justifies. It is he who justifies. What that means is this. Right, God is judge. Right, we stand before him. Right, we stand before him as people who have sinned a lot. But God, who's the judge, says this. Oh, wait, let me look something up here real quick. And he shuffles through some paperwork and he goes, oh, yeah, here it is. Oh, yeah. He's already been acquitted. He's not guilty because of the work of Christ that's already been done on his behalf. He, she, you are not guilty. Okay. Now, what was that you were saying, Satan? Say that one more time. Huh? What charge can you bring against? I, as the supreme judge of the universe, have already said, not guilty. Not guilty on all accounts. He is the one who has declared us in right relationship with himself, right? Uh, And I can just see uh, God standing up, you know, I guess sitting at his bench going, anybody have a problem with that? Anybody in the courtroom have a problem with that? Anybody? Objections? There's no objections, right? Uh, Now some would say, uh, some might try to say, well, that's not a fair judgment, Right? Maybe Satan would try to accuse and say, well, that's not a fair judgment. You were just, you were full of corruption. You were blindly and, and uh, you are circling around. You're doing an end around about justice because he is guilty. And God would say, oh, no, no. You know, you missed, you missed that chapter of the story. Jesus paid the full penalty. Jesus took upon himself the full burden and weight of all of your sin." And he paid the full price and penalty for it. And I have applied his life, who lived perfectly and sinlessly without, without one single error. He was absolutely righteous. And I have applied his righteousness to your life. So, he, we, the, the, the person standing in judgment is right before God. Because God has declared it so through the just work of Christ on the cross, right? So who can bring accusation against us? Praise God, no one. No one. On that day, for those who have put their faith in Christ, no one can bring an accusation against us. Um, He goes on, he says, well then, who can condemn us? Who can bring a word of condemnation against us? Uh, And he says that it's Christ Jesus is the one who died. And even more than that, who was raised, who is currently at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. Uh, Okay, that idea is here. First, it's this idea of bringing an accusation. Secondly, it's the idea of somebody coming along trying to disqualify us or make us somehow ineligible for this prize, right? Uh, This is the guy, you know, that reads the fine print, like, you know, remember getting, I, I used to get these things in the mail, you know, that said, 
You know, you've won. You've won a million dollars. Remember this? Some kind of sweepstakes. I don't even remember what they were called. But some kind of sweepstakes. You get these in the mail. And I would get so excited. Denise, we won a million dollars, right? And we would fill it all out. And we would send it all back in and buy 59 records. Because we'd won, right? And, uh, of course, later, you know, you start reading the fine print. And actually, you didn't win anything, right? You start reading the fine print. And there's lots of reasons why you are ineligible. Why you are disqualified. Why... You're not going to win anything, right? You've got to read the fine print. So this is that person. The person who reads the fine print comes along and finds some reason why you would be ineligible for this great prize, for this, this acquittal, this no condemnation. But he says, well, who, who would do that? He said, Jesus himself is the one who died for us, right? Uh, in this case, uh, it's probably a little different picture, different courtroom, at the end of the age, uh, Scripture is clear that Jesus himself will sit in judgment upon all humanity. Now Jesus himself is judge, uh, along with the Father. And uh, somebody's trying to bring accusations, bring charges, bring things that would disqualify us. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, I died. I know. I am the fine print. Right? I am the detail. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am it all. Right? He died for us. And if somebody thinks that death wasn't good enough, guess what? He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death, right? So if anybody would argue, well, his death could not have been adequate or suitable. His rising from the dead silences the argument, right? Uh, It verifies, it it validates 100% the effectiveness and perfection of his sacrifice for us. He rose from the dead. Not only that, he says, but he now sits at the right hand of God. Okay, so he died. He rose. He sits uh, next to God in this great throne in heaven. On the right side was a picture of supreme um, position of status, right? It's the place of of authority. So Jesus sits in the position of, of authority next to God, the Father, right? And it says that he sits in that position doing what? interceding for us. Now, the word there can use, you know, it was earlier in chapter 8, Paul used this concept, not this actual word, but a concept of the Holy Spirit interceding, praying for us. But here, the word really uh, is not so much the idea that Jesus is praying for us, but it really is the idea that he is an intermediary standing between uh, fallen humanity and a righteous God. And he is, on the basis of his own work on his own death on the cross, He stands before us as the bridge making peace between God and man. And so when anybody comes to bring a word of condemnation, to bring an accusation, to bring something that would disqualify us, Jesus goes to the Father and says, Oh, you know what? I paid for that. I know it's true. I know it's valid because I'm the one who paid the price. I paid the bill. I know what I'm talking about. And I can appeal this this person's case on the basis of what I have done. All right? uh, no one can condemn. Uh, and throughout this passage, uh, he uses the simple three-letter word for, right? What God has, uh, if God is for us, who could be against us? Um, here he says, it is Jesus who died, who rose, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. In the previous one, it says that God gave up his son for us. 
And the word is a very powerful word there, and it's not the typical common Greek word that would use, be used for for. It's a special word that implies the idea of doing something on the behalf of or for the sake of someone. Okay? Jesus specifically did all this on our behalf for our sake. Right? It was his goal, his purpose, uh, his, uh, his life's work to die for us. And now he stands before God uh, making intercession, intercession for us on our behalf, standing between us and the Father, pleading our case. Right? So the good news is this. If we put our faith in Christ, if we are, as he says, one of his elect, one of God's special chosen people whom he is, he is pursued with his love, uh, we are in. Okay, we are in. There is nothing that anybody can do to bring an accusation of charge that would disqualify us or in any way make us ineligible for all the benefits that God is pouring out for us. Right? His whole kingdom, eternal life, his joy, his love, the full package of everything that God is and has that he longingly wants to give to us. Uh, if he would not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how could he not also give us all things? Right? So that's the first section what God has done uh, to, to seal the deal, to guarantee uh, the assurance of our salvation in Christ. Uh, but he goes on and he asks another question, sh- shifting the imagery and the focus a little bit. Uh, and uh, in verse 35 and then again in verse 39, he says this statement, What shall or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? What is there... Uh, in heaven and on, on earth, that could somehow interfere, interfere or derail or weaken or diminish God's love for us? Is there anything anywhere that could get in the way of God lo- loving us? And basically argues that God's love for us is unstoppable. That God loves us dearly and there's absolutely nothing that can get in the way and diminish or weaken or derail God's love for us. And he puts it in these terms. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Uh, We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Um, Well, when you read through that, it sounds kind of good at one level. And it sounds a bit disturbing at another, right? Uh, when you think about what Paul is saying here, uh, it makes me not sure I really want God's love. Because he says, look, God's love is on top of what could possibly separate you from God's love. And then he comes up with this great big long list of things that sound really quite painful and difficult. And then he ends it with this great quote from Psalms 44 that says, hey, after all, we're just all sheep being slaughtered. Right? Now that's what I call love, Right? I think we should make some special line of, of Valentine's cards that kind of go on this theme, you know. You know not, not, I'm going to die for you, but I would like to see you slaughtered because of your love for me, right? Those would sell well, right? Well, what is Paul talking about here? Um, this doesn't really sound like my picture of love, right? Um, he says, uh, uh, you know, he says, we face a boatload of hardship and suffering, right? 
Uh, and he, and let me go through the list briefly and talk about what he's saying. First, he talks about tribulation. The idea means oppression, uh, any kind of any kind of suffering or difficulty where people or circumstances are giving us a hard time, right? Where things are not going the way we want, right? Where we're we're experiencing difficulty in life, right? He's saying uh, that's part of God's love, apparently. Or at least they can't prevent it. Uh, he uses the word distress. Literally, it means to be squeezed or in a very narrow place. Uh, we would maybe use the expression to be in a tight spot. It means extreme affliction and dire calamity. Well, I like those words. Dire calamity. Okay? It means life is not going well. It means you just found out you have cancer. It just means you found out you know, life is getting turned upside down for you, right? Uh, that can't stop God's love. Uh, he, he talks about persecution, being attacked for our faith or for any other reason, being persecuted. Famine, uh, when there is a devastating lack of resources, devastating financial hardship, right? You just don't have the money you need. And maybe even buying food has is, is, is become strained and difficult, uh, nakedness. Uh, and now here's famine taken to its further extreme. Okay, it's not just financial hardship. It's now becoming destitute. Being so poor, you are now destitute. You are homeless. You're left without anything. Okay, that's not an obstacle for God's love. Danger. Uh, extreme risk to health, safety, and security. Right? When life is in a perilous place, it's not a problem for God's love. Sword, uh, martyrdom, death, um, being killed for your faith for the sake of Christ. Right? It's interesting. Paul uh, had personally faced all of these things in his own life uh, and talks about it repeatedly, but one of the best is in 1 Corinthians 4 where he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When, we, when, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Okay? But praise God, I am loved. Wow. Um, what do you think about this? Right? What do you think about this idea that God's love involves this kind of life, right? Um, now, just to make sure we're clear, and just Paul wants to make sure we're real clear about what he's talking about here, he quotes this verse of Psalms. And he says, you know, I want to make it clear that this is, this is the normal life of a follower of God. This is how God treats his friends. <laughs> Behold, we are like sheep being killed all day long, like sheep led to the slaughter, right? This is what God thinks of his friends, right? Who wants to be one? Right? Well, what do we do with this? Right? How do we reconcile this? Uh, if you are like me, uh, those things do not line up with my picture of what God's love is. Right? When I think about God's love, uh, being destitute, being in such extreme hardship that my life is at peril, and perhaps I even die as a result of that, uh, that that's not just a real happy place for me. Right? 
That does not feel warm and fuzzy. That does not feel like God's love and kindness. Right? Honest question. Have you ever been in a place where you've endured some of these difficulties? Where life has been hard, there has been hardship, where your life has been terribly at risk, or at the very least you've been very uncomfortable. Life has been super hard. And you have thought to yourself, like I have, you know, why is this, this happening to me? If God loved me, this would not happen to me. Right? Have you ever said that? Ever thought that? You know, if God really cared about his friends, he wouldn't treat them this way. Right? Paul says, baloney. Paul says, you're confused about God's love. And you're confused about your life. The sad reality is that we have confused blessing with minimum standards for God's, uh, you know, for, for, for the life of a Christian, right? We've said that, you know, when God blesses us, this is my expectation of the minimum things I must have in my life. And Paul says, if you think that, uh, you misunderstand what God's love really is, right? You misunderstand what God's object and purpose in your life is. And you misunderstand the scope and depth of who God is and what he has done for you. Uh, we, have, uh, we have become a church that is uh, incredibly soft and weak, right? And we have dictated to God the minimum standards of what I must have if, if he truly loves me, right? And it sounds like this. We must have comfort. We must have safety. We must have his protection. And we must have his material blessing. Right. Now, of course, none of us would consciously say this. But when we dispute or doubt God's love when he doesn't come through with those things, it's exactly what we're saying. Right? It's exactly what we're saying. We, we come to measure God's love on the basis of his blessing in our life. Uh, but we see it in too small of a picture and in much too small of a scope. We see it only in today's immediate present circumstances. And we fail to see the large picture of what God is doing on a much grander and bigger scale. Uh, we have become a lot like a spoiled child, right, who selfishly demands everything for me and measures the parent's love by how, by how the parent meets my demands and expectations, right? Paul, and, and, and the thing we've got to understand is that Paul was so far from this place and his thinking was so radically different that this kind of thing just didn't even cross his mind, right? And to really put it in perspective, you've got to put yourself in the historical context of a Roman who lived at the time of Christ. At that time in the world, uh, you did one of two things. You either got conquered or you conquered, right? There was no such thing as safe borders anywhere, right? Uh, and the Rome, at that time, Rome was the one conquering, uh, and they had to keep conquering to keep from being invaded and conquered themselves. And so they constantly were at war. And you were either on the winning side or the losing side. But either way, uh, that was what life was for you. Um, during that time, about four or 500 A.D., uh, the Romans had extended north into Europe and were uh, trying to take the British Isles, and specifically Ireland. And the Celts were crazy people. Okay, if you come from Celtic background, you have, you have crazy roots, right? 
that time, they were just lunatics. They, they, the Celts were so crazy during that era, they didn't even live in cities or villages, right? Because they couldn't. They couldn't. They would kill each other, right? And they lived to fight. And when the Romans came against them, they met this army of lunatics. And the Irish, when they would go to war, they would do this. This is how crazy they were. They would strip completely naked, paint themselves blue, take up their sword, and scream until their face contorted into the most scary, horrific thing you can imagine. And then they would charge the enemy, right? Now, the, en- the Romans were much better suited, much better armed, much better trained. They didn't know what to do with these crazy Celts. They turned and ran. Like, these people are nuts, right? And, and the Celts had no problems throwing their life away, right? Because that's the way it worked. You throw your life away. You sacrifice yourself. Because if you don't, you'll be killed, Right? So you give your life to whatever battle is before you. That's how the world used to be. Right? That's how the world used to work. And in Paul's day, they understood this principle that you throw your life into things. And how much you suffer, uh, that you die or don't die, is just part of the deal. It's part of the battle you are engaged in. Right? We've lost that. Right? Now, I'm not saying we should paint ourselves blue, up and blue and go off to war, screaming and yelling. What I'm saying is this, Paul says, you know, is, is God's love worth throwing your life away for? Right? Are you willing to give up comfort and peace and security for the sake of God's love and his purpose and will? That there's nothing in life more valuable, or more important, more precious, more worth pursuing that you would, you would go to great, gain, uh, great extents. You would, you would suffer much to experience God's love. Right? Um, you know, we need to get back to some of the sense of throwing our life away for a greater long-term gain. Uh, and Paul goes on. He says, he doesn't stop there. He says, no, no, okay, no, in all these things, in all this suffering, all this hardship, in all these things, we are what? Famous verse. We all know this, right? We are more than conquerors to those, you know, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. We are, the word here is kind of a difficult one to translate. Uh, we are exceedingly victorious. We are overwhelmingly victorious. It is an extremely one-sided, decisive victory. You know, it's Uncle Drew, only it's a whole team of Uncle Drews, right, who are just slam dunking the ball up one side and down the other. We win big time, right, in spite of all these things. In spite of all this hardship, uh, we have victory. Now, the question is this. He says we get victory, we win. We win the contest, we, we, we gain final conquest over, over what? What is the contest? Have you ever asked and wondered that? What is, the, what is the victory we win? And what's the competition we're in? Well, clearly, uh, we gain victory over sin and death. We gain victory over our own lostness. We gain victory from our own uh, wrath and judgment that we've fallen under. Uh, we gain victory over Satan's accusations and his, his fierce attacks against us. Um, we gain the prize of eternal life, of being adopted as his children and becoming uh, his own. 
we gain the victory of our souls finding eternal life in him. Right? Uh, so let me use one more sports illustration. Back from the courtroom, back to sports. Um, see, this is the problem. We're confused because we don't really get the object of the game. We don't understand the game we are playing. Right? Imagine that you're a coach. Okay, pick your sport, basketball, soccer, football, whatever. It uh, doesn't matter. But you're the coach, and uh, you're, you're trying to do what? Well, you want to be the champion. You want to win, right? Uh, but your athletes come to you, and they say to you, um, you know, coach, when I want to do this game, I want to go through the whole game without getting injured. Okay? Now, if you're a coach, you're going, <laughs> What? Get out there and break something, okay? Don't give me that. You're not going to win playing it safe, right? Don't give me that. I want you to go out there and I want you to throw yourself at the opposition. If it's football, smack somebody as hard as you can. Break something, okay? Don't tell me that, right? Because you're not going to win if your only concern is to protect and preserve yourself, right? Right? That's why I can never play baseball, that hard ball coming at me at the speed of light, I would duck every time. <laughs> I never caught the ball, right? You can't do that. I mean, you've got to throw yourself out there. Block the ball with your face if that's what it takes, right? Because the point of the game is to achieve victory, not to be comfortable and safe, right? Paul says, look, we are waging a war over sin and death, what is at stake is being in right relationship with God and experiencing fully his love and presence in our life. And you're worried about getting hurt? Coach Paul is saying, you've lost it, right? You're missing the point. Look at what is at stake here. Way more than our personal comfort. Way more than our safety. Way more than getting our own little way in the world. We're talking about an eternal prize, right? to living God's love and grace. Uh, when, I was, when I was coaching uh, track, uh, I, had, um, I had a lot of crazy athletes who I'm very proud of who suffered lots for the cause. One of them uh, uh, tore his meniscus towards the end of the season. Uh, the tore his knee, damaged it, and had to quit running. And he was one of, um, one of our better 800-meter runners, and we had a relay team, 4 by 800, and we had won state in that event several years in a row and had a good shot at winning again. And for this kid, it was his senior year, right, last chance to go to state, and he injures, tears his meniscus, and he's out, and it's just incredibly painful for him to run. Well, it gets down to right before the league meet where it's a big meet to decide who goes to state, and he can't, comes to me and he says, I want to run. And I said, well, you know, it's the fastest guy goes. So here's what I'll do. I'll do a time trial between you and three other guys. It was for the fourth slot on the team. If you can beat them all, you can go, right? So he goes out there, and the kid runs like a maniac. And you could tell he was in pain. I mean, it was painful for him to run. But he goes out there, and he beats the other three guys, wins a spot on the team, goes to state. I don't think they actually won that year, but they did well. They did well, right? Um, you see... Competing was, was well worth the, the pain involved. But Paul says there is an ultimate prize. He says, I am certain of this. I am confident of this, that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, height or depth, or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us. And the amazing thing is we are victorious not because we have fought well, honestly, not because we're extraordinary, extraordinary contributors on the team, Okay, we're very much a team with an Uncle Drew who's just light years ahead of us. I mean, God is the one carrying it all, who has done it all. All he asks us to do is step on the field with him in faith and go with him on the journey, right? He says, yeah, it's going to be hard. Sometimes we are going to be like sheep led off to slaughter, right? But he says, my love is certain, there is absolutely nothing that will ever interfere with my love for you, right? And you've got to trust me that what I am doing in your life is so much greater, so much greater than the small inconveniences you face now. Height or depth, present or future, angels, demons, nothing in all of creation can interfere with my love for you, right? But the question for us is, are we really living for his love? Right? Is that really the chief pursuit of our life? Uh, and, and here's the reality. If, we're, if we are not living uh, with the goal and pursuit of his love above everything, then whatever else it is we are living for is an idol in our life. Right? It is an idol. Um, if it's our own safety and protection and comfort, it's an idol. And I think one of the reasons Paul could say that I could endure all this stuff and still experience God's love in it is that oftentimes it is in those things that we most encounter God's love and care. When we live trying to insulate our life from every problem, the reality is uh, oftentimes we miss out on God's presence and what he really wants to do to demonstrate and show his love to us, to show his faithfulness. But the bottom line is we've got to We've got to decide that his love is indeed the greatest treasure of my life. That I would die. I would die. I would lose everything in order to have his love alone. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you so much for your incredible love and grace. And Lord, we... um, we get so distracted. And Lord, we thank you that there's nothing that can diminish or derail your love for us. But how easily we are derailed and sidetracked from, from pursuing your love. Lord, how easily we turn away from your heart and get caught up and distracted with much lesser things. Um, how easy it is to get discouraged because life is hard and misunderstand that somehow we think that means you don't love us anymore. Uh, Father, please banish such crazy thoughts from our mind and become convinced, as Paul was, of the absolute certainty of your love for us, a love that is unstoppable, uh, that cannot be thwarted in any way. And Lord, help us to rejoice and celebrate that love together. As we do now, as we prepare for communion, and we... We remember and celebrate this great truth that you did not spare your own son, but you handed him over to death and judgment on our behalf. 
And Lord, we want to remember and celebrate that together now in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.